Is the system of capitalism largely to blame for turning the COVID-19 pandemic into a full-blown crisis? Is the U.S.-NATO war against Russia via Ukraine a desperate move by a failing U.S. economic power? What were the elements that gave China an edge over the Western world? Are the higher-ups managing COVID-19 in China actually being influenced by the United States? And how is that affecting the Chinese COVID response? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are looking at the world's current economic and political difficulties through the lens of the historical trajectory of the economic currents rising and competing with those of allied and enemy countries. Starting off, our first guest, Professor Radhika Desai, introduces her latest book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, A Geopolitical Economy, which notes the devastation caused by the pandemic was already rooted in the failures of the model of neoliberal financialization and more calibrated ways for progressives to achieve change. This interview is followed by an interview with Madi Nazamroya, who has worked in the field in China and brings some unique thoughts about China's approach to the disease and how elements actually were similar in a lot of ways to the American and European methods. On this week's program, the historical road leading to today's crises and beyond. Conversations with Radhika Desai and Madi Nazamroya. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 20th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We would like to acknowledge that this radio show was produced on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Acknowledging the indigenous people from whom we first received access to the land and waters of this part of Turtle Island is only a beginning, but far from a complete act of restoring justice for broken promises, colonial violence, and racism directed at them in return. We would now like to start News Notes, a sample of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Schwab does not even bother with the UN's legislative dictates to government. His people work inside those governments and inside the large corporations which lobby them. That is corporatism. That explains the mess the world is in. Schwab's Great Reset is no more than perpetuating the power structures which brought about the chaos, the debt crisis, the pandemic, and its COVID dictatorship and excess deaths, the powerlessness of parliaments and the road to world war. That comes from the article, Nazis' Children at the World Economic Forum, 
by Rodney Atkinson, posted January 18th, originally published on Free Nations. Iran, which does not actually threaten either the U.S. or any identifiable strategic interests of Washington, is already on the receiving end of virtually every sanction imaginable put in place over more than 40 years by successive American presidents. And now, because Iran is friendly with Russia and supplying that country with weapons that are surely welcome, but unlikely to change the course of the war, the U.S. is again preparing to make and take on yet another enemy, possibly with Israeli clandestine or even open help. One wonders, nevertheless, how much of the posturing by the White House is real and how much of it is fake. Since the United States is now approaching a $1 trillion defense budget for 2023, Somebody has to figure out a way to both justify the expenditure while also making all that money politically useful by telling the public that the spending is making Americans quote-unquote safe. And what could be better than using all those shiny new weapons on a few quote-unquote enemies here and there? guaranteeing that the defense contractors will get even richer and will kick back even more to the very politicians who are the source of the largesse. That comes from the article, Ukraine War Spills Over into the Middle East, by Philip Giraldi, posted January 18th, originally published on the UNS Review. The unadorned elegance of Drake's stoneware is at the heart of Hear Me Now, the Black Potters of Old Edgefield, South Carolina, currently on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This is an extraordinary exhibition, the significance of which can hardly be overstated. One can perceive these ceramics fashioned by the hands of slaves as the material incarnation of human freedom, on one hand, they are the work of men in bondage, and yet they stand witness to an inwardness, a human core that cannot be enslaved. The exhibition includes, for example, a storage vessel that Drake produced in 1858 and inscribed with a couplet, quote, a very large jar which has four handles, equals packet full of fresh meats, then light candles, unquote. That comes from the article Pottery, Poetry, and Protest. Hear me now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art by Professor Sam Ben-Mir, posted January 18th. While his diagnosis of, quote, the most critical fragmentation, unquote, the world is now mired in is predictably somber. Herr Schwab maintains that, quote, the spirit of Davos is positive, unquote, and in the end, we may all live happily in a, quote, green sustainable economy, unquote. What Davos has been good at this week is showering public opinion with new mantras. There's, quote, the new system, unquote, which 
considering the abject failure of the much-ballyhooed Great Reset, now looks like a matter of hastily updating the current rattled operating system. Davos needs new hardware, new programming skills, even a new virus. Yet, for the moment, all that's available is a quote-unquote polycrisis, or in Davos speak, a quote, cluster of related global risks with compounding effects, unquote. That comes from the article Fragmented World, Sleepwalks into World War III by Pepe Escobar, posted January 18th, originally published on Press TV. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War is the latest book by Professor Radhika Desai. It makes the point that the economic crisis ultimately was a crisis at the very heart of the neoliberal financialized capitalist system. And the virus only served to accelerate the decline of the US-dominated world capitalist imperial order. And measures taken in the wars that followed only accelerates it. Um, accelerates the decline even further. This model follows a history going back to the very beginning and plots other times where a capitalist power ran up against issues and used state power to help them emerge from the pressures that would lead to eradication. What steps should the left take today to prevent this same state rescue attempt or, or possibly something even worse from succeeding? The book's author is here with me to, to share uh, a little of her understanding. Dr. Radhika Desai is professor at the Department of Political Studies and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba in Canada. She's the author of several other books, and uh, now including uh, Geopolitical Economy After U.S. Hegemony, Globalization, and Empire. Radhika, thank you for joining us. It's, it's good to have you back on. Always a pleasure to be on your show, Michael. Now, in your book, you contend that, and Marx and Engels contend, that uh, capitalism runs up against internal contradictions. The capitalist trajectory takes it from competitiveness to monarchy capitalism, which uh, combined with pressure from the working class ultimately results in socialism. And, and that historically, it is the actions of the capitalist state that force systems to remain capitalist as, as opposed to going socialist. This, this pandemic situation that, that we were sort of coming out of was the, the latest crisis that, that pushed, uh, you know, challenging our model. You know, uh, that this you point to how the neoliberal systems put the capitalist states and, and, and particularly their strongest advocates the U.S. and Great Britain at a supreme disadvantage in, in dealing with the situation, especially when you compare it to socialist economies or, or countries where neoliberalism is not as strong a factor. There are all kinds of factors affecting which countries go through chaos as opposed to uh, a nuisance, uh, but, but manageable disease. Could you explain your claim that capitalist and neopolitical, uh, neoliberal policy and 
did indeed exacerbate the, the difficulties in dealing with COVID-19. Yeah, thanks, Michael. So this is really the core of the book, you know, there's a, you know, as you know, I, we can't really walk for all the writings and publications on the pandemic, but where this book is unique is that it demonstrates, or, or, or the main question it asks is, yes, the COVID-19 pandemic was certainly a big shock. It was a major public health emergency, but why is it that this, what should have been ultimately just a serious public health emergency, why did it turn into such a knockdown political crisis, knockdown economic crisis of capitalism? And I say economic, but of course it is an all pervasive crisis because if you think about it, the very weaknesses that I identify are also associated with increasing social inequality, increasing political division and breakdown, and even to a great extent, the cultural disintegration we are facing with the extent of disinformation coming both from the social media and from the mainstream media. So to get back to the main point, what I argue is that what's become clear uh, after 40 years of applying neoliberalism is that neoliberalism, which was supposed to solve the problems of capitalism after capitalism entered the 1970s stagflationist period, uh, neoliberalism was bandied about as this thing that was going to resolve the crisis of capitalism. It would restore capitalism's productive dynamism. But in reality, what has happened is that uh, neoliberal, the application of neoliberal policies has actually weakened capitalism further, so much so that we have now lived through 40 years of relatively low growth, 40 years in which our productive economies have become considerably weakened through very systematic processes of deindustrialization, out of which, of course, phenomena such as Trump and Brexit have been the results. So we have been deindustrializing. Meanwhile, the application of neoliberal policies, which have done down our productive economies, have actually encouraged the explosion of activity in the financial sphere. So, and the financial sphere basically is uh, essentially parasitic upon the productive sphere. So we have a shrinking productive sphere on which a growing financial sphere is increasingly parasitic. And we also know, of course, that the financial sphere is also at the, the explosion of financial activities also at the root of this intolerable levels of social inequality that we are looking at. So my point was that this, the, the system was already very weakened when the pandemic came along. And so the pandemic essentially hit an already weakened system. On top of that, there is one other thing. So there is the underlying weakness. But you know, you earlier referred to the different reactions of the of the capitalist classes in um, responding to crises. So as we know, for example, the capitalist world went through a very deep crisis in the early part of the 20th century. Some people even call it a 30 years crisis running from 1914 to 1945. Uh, including the Great Great Depression, the rise of fascism, and all of these. And capitalist powers at that time were forced to respond to this crisis in a relatively progressive way. So as we know, in the post-Second World War period, what has happened, what happened was that capitalist societies, the leading capitalist societies borrowed from the toolkit of socialism and they instituted full employment policies, they instituted welfare states, they instituted an enormous amount of it, regulation of industry and capitalism generally. And finally, they also adopted a fairly high degree 
of state ownership, something we tend to forget today. So this was the policy uh, paradigm which enabled the golden age of growth of capitalism. But, but of course, the system in the Western countries remain capitalist. So its own operation, as you rightly pointed out, I argue, along with Marx and Engels, that capitalism is not only prone to contradiction and crises, but it is prone to contradiction and crises at many, many levels in practically every area of activity. What capitalism needs and demands from society and often gets from society is almost impossible. Therefore, trying to achieve that and ends uh, makes capitalist societies get uh, uh, ensnared in all sorts of contradictions. So inevitably, this post-war arrangement, which left the underlying structure of capitalism in place, ran into crisis in the 1970s. And at that point, our governments um, basically said, look, these all socialistic measures of welfare states and full employment policies, et cetera, are no longer working. We are going to throw them out. We are going to give capitalism all the freedom it wants, et cetera. Uh, and this is going to restore the productive, uh, uh, productive dynamism of our economies. Now, it would have been fine. You know, the, the neoliberal ideology tends to assume a competitive capitalism, but you are applying a remedy that might have worked in the case of competitive capitalism. I underline might, we can discuss that, but they were actually applying it to a capitalism that had already become a monopoly capitalism. And so giving monopoly capital the same freedoms was not going to lead to the restoration of productive dynamism. So instead it has led to financialization. So we have weakened our productive structures and we have expanded the uh, rules, uh, the, the, the prerogatives and freedoms of what is essentially a predatory, speculative, parasitical financial capitalism. And so these are the people we have privileged, our governments have privileged for 40 years, you know, year in and year out, even though these policies were not restoring productive dynamism, our governments continued with them. So the other thing this book argues is that if we look at what happened during the pandemic, the responses on the public health front, on the economic front, in particular, but practically every front, were actually designed not to address the underlying public health crisis or to restore jobs or economies. They were designed primarily to keep in place the uh, the the incredible power of a small number of increasingly unproductive, speculative, predatory fi and financialized corporations. And this is what has made the crisis so serious because our governments are essentially uh, encouraging the worst elements, the elements that suck up the uh, the results and the fruit of the productive labors of whether of small business or workers or what have you, instead of engaging in the investment, the investment in production that is required for us. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I really there's a question I want to put to you, and uh, it, it concerns the the whole idea of of managing human health uh, because uh, it's increasingly managed by private companies known as pharmaceutical corporations, big pharma. You know, the, these companies, which while, while they deal in health, are also motivated by private profit making. And, and increasingly in this world, there is a tendency to push their uh, prescription treatments, uh, vaccines and, and so on, where they make money and, and generic medication is sidelined. There's a whole lot of information about this subject outside of COVID. 
but but the healthcare regulators have it, it, it is argued, been subject to regulatory capture by private companies. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and, uh, uh, and associated entities have, have arguably influenced the WHO. And, and there you're talking about monopoly capitalism right there, it seems to me. And, and it, it is compliance with these institutions that are he heavily influenced by private profit seekers that determines the healthcare treatments. So, so it, whether you're a capitalist or not, we all prescribe to it, right? So, so doesn't this factor uh, also play a role in, in how we deal with and recover? From Absolutely. Yes. In fact, so uh, uh, one of the major chapters in the book deals with how the leading neoliberal financialized capitalisms, and here I focus chiefly on the US and the UK because they are the leading financialized neoliberal capitalisms. And the same would apply to other countries with adjustments and adaptations and, and so on. But anyway, if you look at the responses of these countries, they have, undoubtedly they have been governed by the interests, not only of big pharma, but generally the plethora of uh, uh, big monopoly corporations that ring around the healthcare sectors, you know, whether it is hospital management companies or uh, big pharma or or and, and other such, you know, testing and all that. So in and and even companies that have nothing to do with this. So for example, in the United Kingdom, the entire job of testing and tracing infections was given over to a company that had absolutely no experience with this, you know, in, merely in order that they would essentially. And, you know, purport to employ largely untrained people and pay them and largely embezzlement of money, basically. So there are a numerous open questions about the way in which such governments, our governments have addressed the pandemic. So uh, definitely Big Pharma has profited. In amidst all this, the other thing that has happened, of course, is that, you know, you see that, you know, when such a big crisis happens and so on, you would expect that um, the left would be in the forefront of criticizing the, the, the horrible way in which our governments manage the crisis. But throughout this period of crisis and then subsequently war and so on, we have found the left either on the back foot, unable to respond vigorously uh, with determination, with clarity, with with purpose, etc., uh, and and uh, if not uh, if not on the back foot, they of course in the case of the war, they're openly uh, allying with the imperialist and uh, pro uh, pro financial capital uh, actions of our governments. So. Um, uh, and and in the place of uh, of the left, in fact, what we have seen is something far more dangerous. It is the right that has been in the forefront of opposing the governments on the basis of enormous amounts of misinformation and, 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 and so on. And I think the reason for that is also quite interesting. I mean, we can discuss the left's failures in a minute. But the reason why the right has been in the ascendant in many ways is primarily because it is very clear to a lot of people that our governments were acting, not acting entirely in good faith, that, that, the, the, that the problems, the, the incredible death rates that we have experienced, the fatalities that we have experienced have been because of 
the the bad faith in which our governments have dealt with us, telling us that they are working to save our lives and livelihoods. Meanwhile, in reality, working to benefit uh, big pharma, to benefit the medical industrial complex, and so on. So when people sense that there is bad faith, they respond to anybody who is going to say, "Well, you know, I know the reason for that," and that's why you know it's the left has been in the ascendant. It's because of this bad faith on the part of our governments, and of course the failures of the left. If I may just simply uh, clarify that the actual contrast I make in my book between a big pharma and medical industrial complex fueled response, as we have seen in Western countries, particularly in the US and the UK, um, the contrast, uh, the, the main contrast uh, should be between them and what has happened in China. That is to say, for almost three years, the Chinese government prioritized the saving of lives over anything, livelihoods and everything. And they actually managed to have a, uh, 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 to manage to save both because they have actually had far greater economic growth, economic dynamism, etc., And at the same time, kept deaths to an absolutely really very low level. So this is, this is what I would, this is the contrast I would like to give. And this is the contrast I actually give in my, uh, uh, in my, um, in my book. And this is also supported by all those people who have generally supported a zero COVID policy. Zero COVID policy doesn't mean an unending lockdown, nor is what nor, nor, nor is that what what happened in China. China did not have any sort of unending lockdown. China has had a very calibrated policy of reducing and minimizing the number of infections. The problem is that the rest of the world has not gone along with them. That's a different matter. But the leading leading medical professionals have pointed out that on the basis of science, a zero COVID policy is the best way to go with. And China is today changing its approach because it senses that the nature of the threat has changed. And I think this is what we have to keep our eye on. And what, what I would like to say is that in China, China did not say, oh, we have to balance savings of lives versus livelihoods, which essentially gives you the uh, the opportunity to uh, support the uh, uh, big financial capitalists and 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 so on in the name of saving livelihoods. Uh, in reality, China prioritized saving lives and it managed to save both lives and actual livelihoods, not the livelihoods of the Elon Musk's and the Jeff Bezos of this world, but of ordinary people. On the top, the title of war. Uh, you, you point to the current war in Ukraine as an example of the de desperation of the U.S. hegemonic states and, and their allies to, to maintain hegemony uh, following the pandemic and, and the negative effects on the economy. And I'm not sure, though, how it is uh, any more hawkish than any other time in the past, in the last 30 years. I mean, invading countries in the name of human rights is, is something they've always done you know what's what's noticeable no i i agree of course at one level what the current war the current conflict over ukraine which i see essentially as a proxy war being waged by the united states against russia using ukraine as a proxy and as many people have pointed out in a war in which the united states seems set to fight russia to the last ukrainian yes uh, this is in line with the whole post cold war and even generally imperialist long history of imperialism of fighting wars and subjugating people in the name of giving them civilization and democracy and human rights and white man's burden and whatnot. I totally agree there is a great continuity. At the same time, I do think that President Biden has uh, landed the United States
United States and the world, in fact, into a qualitatively more dangerous situation because this is the first time that he is uh, provoking uh, in a very real way uh, and waging a war against a nuclear armed power, a permanent member of the Security Council. And President Biden also uh, seems set to expand the conflict beyond that as well. So uh, to, to China, uh, which in many ways will prove an even more formidable enemy. And in the context, so uh, so in this context, what we are looking at, so to me, what's happening is that the same problems of neoliberal capitalism are involved in the current aggression of the United States. And this is also going to accelerate a trend which we have been seeing all along, for a long time anyway, for a decade or two anyway, which is the increasing uh, a disillusion of the rest of the world, the, the non-imperialist parts of the world, the third world, these countries are increasingly becoming disillusioned and realizing that they have much more to gain from um, from uh, allying with countries like China and today even Russia than to gain from allying with the West. So essentially, these policies are creating a new bipolar division of the world. Yeah, uh, sort of like uh, every uh, you know every action taken by the United States is, is boomeranging back and, and hitting them absolutely hard as much as it is. Um, but, exactly because it is it's not making the uh, the West any stronger it's only making the West weaker and that much more desperate you're listening to the global research news hour broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States examples of capitalist uh, crises. Uh, there, there were several examples from 1914 to the period of neoliberalism uh, since the late 70s. Uh, could you examine the current crisis and compare it to the 30 years crisis? I mean, we're, when there, there was another stock market, market crash in 1929, uh, leading to the Great Depression, and, and there were rising hordes of frustrating uh, workers and also fascism, uh, on the rise in countries around the world. Today, we also had a stock market crash and, and, and the similar making of a recession that, that could turn into a depression. Could you please point out yeah. similarities and also prominent differences between these two areas? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, let me say that that crisis, uh, like I said earlier, you know, there was a, it was really a pretty big 30 years crisis, you know, uh, uh, in which a whole range of, you know, there was, uh, there were two, two great imperialist wars, uh, there was this big economic depression and so on. And I would say that, you know, looking back uh, from the vantage point of 2022, 2023, um, uh, the after 40 years and more of neoliberalism, I think certain things are becoming very clear. So first of all, I would say that um, 1914 and the early part of the 20th century generally can be regarded as sort of the peak of capitalism and capitalist imperialism. And since then, they've kind of been on a decline. So, you know, as I narrate in the book, um, 
towards the end of that period of crisis, as the Second World War was winding to a close, many leading intellectuals actually thought that the world would turn towards socialism because capitalism had kind of exhausted its whatever historical utility it may have had. And in doing so, it had demonstrated the havoc it could cause, the disasters it could cause in the form of imperialist wars, great depressions and so on. So people felt that the world would move in a socialistic direction. And then you had the so-called golden age of capitalism. So a lot of people, including many Marxists, began to say, ah, well, capitalism is alive and well, there's nothing wrong with it, etc. But in reality, when we look back, as I was saying earlier, what enabled the golden age to occur was the fact that the first world countries, the imperialist core, was forced to employ socialistic measures of you know, full employment, macroeconomic policies, welfare states, state ownership, in great industrial regulation, et cetera, et cetera, progressive taxation and so on. Meanwhile, of course, a large part of the world was already socialist and communist and growing at a relatively high rate. And then finally, third world countries, newly independent third world countries were embarked on uh, attempts at national autonomous development. So it was a really, it was really a configuration which may not have been socialist. I mean, it's not going to be possible to build socialism in a day. So, but nevertheless, a world that was leaning in that direction, even though first world countries did not become socialist, they did become social democratic. And that's what enabled the golden age. When the underlying capitalism led to crisis and we applied neoliberalism. We see the true debility of capitalism. It is not capable anymore of productive dynamism, only capable of creating a predatory, parasitical financial system that sucks like, you know, a giant vampire squid. The earnings based on production of ordinary people. So, what is very clear in retrospect is that today capitalism has exhausted its utility. And so, and of course, this uh, uh, there is also a, 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 a um, difference in the response of governments, the response of governments in the post-Second World War period, which created the, uh, uh, the um, welfare, Keynesian welfare states in Western countries were, were, were necessary and possible. Capitalist states could not do otherwise because working people were strongly organized. By contrast, by the, uh, uh, today, even though neoliberalism has been attacking the rights of working people, right, left and center, in most Western countries, working class organizations and parties are on the back foot. They are not on the uh, ascendant. They should be, but they are not. And in my book, I have a very long discussion of how to understand this inability of the Western left. And I do make a couple of points, but maybe I should just summarize that by saying that basically what it amounts to is that both intellectually and politically, the left in the Western imperialist core has kind of made a Faustian bargain with uh, their own governments in which they support their government's imperialist ventures in return for a few crumbs from the capitalist table. But today, if the capitalist table doesn't have much to give. So working class people are being attacked anyway. They are not able to respond. Uh, large parts of the left are still engaged in supporting imperialist ventures by claiming to uh, stand up for democracy and human rights against this or that dictator and authoritarian ruler and so on. And uh, the big opportunity, which is to create a left which unites working people and all the institutions that support them, which may include 
many socialist states that unites all these forces against the forces of capitalism, which are creating economic crisis, war, etc. This opportunity is being missed. Well, Radhika, you know, uh, your book has been praised by the likes of Michael Hudson, uh, as well as uh, Arnold August and, and other people who've been uh, on the show before. So it's, uh, it's really been uh, uh, quite, quite an honor to be able to uh, provide it for our readers. And you can get a free copy, you know, go to... A table yes, I, let me emphasize that, you know, uh, I would like to emphasize that this book is available free because a foundation called Knowledge Unlatched shows this book to make uh, as, as one of the few that they will make available free for anybody who wants them. So you can download a PDF copy for free at the link that Michael is going to give to his show. Thanks a lot, Radhika. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much, Michael. Dr. Radhika Desai is professor of the Department of Political Studies and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University, University of Manitoba in To get a free copy of Radhika Desai's book, go to the website taylorfrancis.com. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-F-R-A-N-C-I-S.com. And then type Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War in the eBooks search engine. Then type the cover of the book to get the download link. In our previous conversation, China was mentioned as doing a better job with resolving COVID-19 essentially because it put the welfare of the people ahead of the profit motives of the big pharmaceutical corporations and the predatory elements of the U.S. and European countries largely beholden to them. The Global Research News Hour thought it would get an opinion of an individual who has done extensive fieldwork in the world's most populous country. Mari Darius Nazamroya is an interdisciplinary sociologist and an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst and author of The Globalization of NATO and a forthcoming book, The War on Libya and the Recolonization of Africa. He is a sociologist and research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization, a contributor to the Strategic Culture Foundation, and a member of the Scientific Committee of Geopolitica Italy. Now, first of all, uh, I just uh, want to talk about, uh, I know that uh, Radhika Desai has uh, recently written a book about uh, the, uh, uh, I guess, the, the, the changes uh, through history uh, and, and how the, the capitalist class had uh, uh, basically went on a neoliberal financialization that uh, made us vulnerable to the pandemic and uh, has basically said that, that more than anything else was responsible and she also brought up China as a, you know a kind of a counterpoint because they handled it so much better um, I, I was wondering if, if you have any thoughts about uh, uh, well you know not necessarily directly about it but uh, you know any thoughts about uh, how China uh, what allowed it to, to do better and then then Canada, the United States, and the rest of the world, where neoliberal financialization was a, a factor in their uh, survival. Uh, in terms of COVID performance, this is how I would look at it. Uh, Western economies definitely 100% had a neoliberal financializing uh, agenda. 
they intentionally changed the face of their economic structures. They took the opportunity before COVID-19, those economies in the Western countries were in decline. It wasn't COVID-19. COVID-19 might have been a catalyst to increase it and, and definitely a pretext to, you know, they were already planning on automating a lot of workforces, getting rid of them, cutting back on those things. Um, uh, so it worked out in their favor. But in China, too, there, were, there, was, there was changes that were made because of COVID-19. Some of them are actually similar to their Western counterparts as well. Uh, so uh, I would say in November is when there's a U-turn in the uh, zero COVID-19 policy. I think that has many factors involved. Uh, one that people, one that comes into discussion is the protests in China. Now, there were protests, there were riots, and there was dissent, but there was also many people who were just against the policies who did not, you know, they didn't try to cause sabotage, they didn't protest. And I, and I don't want to mix protest and sabotage. They're two different things, right? Um, yeah. There was a variety of responses to the COVID-19. And of course, there was, there was opportunism from certain Western countries to use those protests in a negative way. Um, from the beginning, the get-go, when this virus started, the world's top virus experts said that the uh, coronavirus-19 virus uh, is going to 80% plus of the population of humans on the earth will catch it. There's no stopping it from spreading. You know? uh, so, I mean, the, there's unfair... There's an unfair discourse definitely about China, but in, in many senses, China also has, you know, it's taken the opportunity to, to make its own changes. And um, I mean, there's pharmaceutical, big pharmaceutical companies here as well. And, and I mean, they, yeah. they've, uh, you know, China also has many companies that are similar to the West, like big tobacco companies. I think they might, Giant tobacco companies. It's a big. It's big for. The, it's a big source of revenue based on the taxes for the government too, and and and. Um, well, maybe we could talk about uh, you know the going back to zero COVID. I know Michelle Chosodovsky had written an article on the Shanghai zero COVID policy, and uh, he pointed to whom the announcement came from. Uh, he said it was a, a protege of Anthony Fauci, and that he was working. For uh, a faction loyal to the United States, uh, this maneuver resulted in a major hit to the country's economy. The won versus the dollar, a plunge in April of last year. And, and this came after China could not bend with EU countries and, and, and uh, you know, condemn the Russian attack on Ukraine. What I'm wondering is. Do you agree with Chosodovsky to that extent, that, that this was, in fact, an economic attack? Or was it just something that the Chinese people came to feel was a necessity and, and the economic impact was just convenient for Americans? Okay, so that's a great question. And I, I think it's really interesting to contrast Dr. Radhika Desai or Professor Radhika Desai's uh, position with Professor Dr. Michelle Chesdovsky's position. Um, I, I would say that uh, definitely uh, Dr. Chesdovsky has 
made very good points. I, I do feel that uh, the gentleman he mentioned, uh, who's educated in Oxford, involved with many global institutes, also involved in training for a global pandemic. You know, one of the few, the Chinese Center for Disease Control was actually in many aspects working with the United States on on a lot of projects, you know, even the, the, the from laboratories to the global early warning system that the Obama administration set up, you know, and um, I, I definitely, I, 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 this gentleman actually, uh, you know, people from the CDC, the Chinese CDC made comments, for example, as ridiculous as avoid foreigners, you know, at, at one point. You know, which kind of show a disconnect from the science in my perspective. You know, I'm a social science, uh, I'm a social scientist, but you know, there's some logic that is common. You know, as it's, and I won't say it's social science. It's just scientifically, you know, avoiding foreigners. Like, you know, the the context and how it's said is really important. And um, most of the vi virus that COVID cases in China that occurred were from returning Chinese, not from foreigners, you know. So, I mean, avoiding foreigners it just caused xenophobia here uh, or there, sorry, in China. So xenophobia uh, uh, is a big byproduct of this COVID era, you know. In the West, there was very, you know, so-called Asian hate or and a lot of negative views towards Chinese people, which I, th I, th I think is is wrong. And geopolitically motivated and, and ideologically uh, uh, pushed um, latently, of course, not manifestly. Um, but here, but, but in, um, here in the case of China, in China, Chinese society, there was also xenophobia against foreigners. You know, you know, it's 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 there too. You know, on the um, Back to Chazadovsky's uh, perspective. Yeah, uh, well, when you talk about Shanghai, there's complexity. So as, the, as, as, as what's been said on the grapevine about China is there was also political. You have to remember that a few months ago, the, there was this, the, the Congress of the Communist Party met. There was big changes made. Uh, so a lot of people were removed, you know, retired, gone. I know there was... A lot of um, attention on the former president uh, being escorted out uh, and while a meeting was taking place. Some believe this is a signal to say, well, President Xi is untouchable, you know, or, or uh, that group or faction have been removed. Actually, the prime minister or premier of China, who is the protege of the, the, the president who was removed from the meeting, he, he also had his position. Uh, uh, his position was also, he was taken out of his position, you know, new PM prime minister was instated um, to, to head the state council. Uh, yeah, there was, there was infighting in this country in, in, that we're talking about China. Yeah, there was political infighting, COVID. It happened in the context of COVID in Shanghai is one of those places because it was a power base for for opposition to the uh, to President Xi, the the paramount leader of the People's Republic of China. Um, so there is truth. I mean, but the economic damages and issues on a wider scale was just in Shanghai, 
you know, the K Shanghai, uh, places like Shanghai, and many people know about what happened in Shanghai with lockdowns, but they don't know about places like Xi'an. Xi'an, which used to be the capital of China, you know, uh, and has a, it's very famous for having uh, been the former capital, also very famous for having one of the most prestigious mosques for Muslims in, in China is, is in Xi'an. You know, and great food, known for great street food. Well, Xi'an had a much longer lockdown than Shanghai. You know, so there's always questions of are these lockdowns linked to any political infighting or policies? But I, at the same time, there was a lot of people making money off the lockdowns. Uh, just two months ago, many organizations or enterprises. They, their leaders were like they were closed and fined and uh, arrested because they were reporting false positives of COVID-19 because they were making money off testing and and other things and you know selling medical equipment. Um, yeah, so I definitely I would say that the zero COVID policy did do economic damage in in mainland China as well as in um, uh, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region or SAR, which is a part of China that has autonomy. So mainland China and Hong Kong both had economic damage caused by uh, the COVID policies. Small businesses died, for example. You know, some bigger businesses expanded or benefited. Uh, but China, like you, you look at a lot of the reports now, the Chinese economy is 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 retracting, and the Chinese yuan, the value will definitely go up. I mean, that's forecasted. But the economy and, and growth has has declined. Now the question is, has this been caused by lockdowns and COVID nineteen? Well, we can say definitely, maybe COVID nineteen, lockdowns. I would argue yes are a factor, but then there's remember China exports. It's the world's uh, uh, it's the world's um, workhouse, right? Where everything's made. Uh, so the world is going into well, not the world. I would say the global north specifically. So this is some parts of West Asia, uh, the former Soviet Union, Japan, South Korea. Uh, Australia, even though it's in the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, um, Singapore, uh, the European continent, more or less, uh, Turkey, uh, North America, these, this place, these countries consi con are, are considered the global north. Well, the global north has been in economic decline. And to an extent, maybe this has had a... They say that uh, China and America's relationships economically are kind of like the relationship between a dentist and his patient. You know, as the, as the dentist goes into the patient's mouth, the patient grabs the dentist's crotch and, and asks, we aren't going to hurt each other, are we? Uh, maybe you've heard of that. Uh, but uh, because China is the manufacturer of, of 70 to 80 percent uh, uh, or more of, of all merchandise sold in America, so aggressive actions taken against one side will result in aggressive actions against uh, oneself. Uh, the sanctions yeah, against Russia has you're, apparently you're had a similar impact on the U.S. Uh, uh, 
what impacts will these zero COVID policy ultimately have on the United States? Well, there is no more zero COVID policy. It got dropped in November. They have a herd immunity policy. Uh, but I, uh, you're definitely right about that relationship. There has been, uh, the, the push now has been for strategic decoupling where they can be divorced. So, I mean, if you look at um, uh, um, what is called, what's his name? Great scholar, Marxist as well, uh, he, who, uh, who wrote The Long Century. If you look at the work of uh, uh, Arigi, he talks about this way before many people, decades ago, uh, about how the economies of China and the United States are linked. He talks about the, he, he, he talks about something called shifts. So he starts off his, his thesis is that, look, uh, capitalism develop, develops in the Italian city-states like Venice, Genoa, you know, they, they mercantilism, in terms of, they become financial centers. Then there's a shift north to the Dutch. The Dutch start, you know, they start going overseas. And then there's another shift from the Dutch to England. He does, I'm not saying Britain. He says England, it's England, specifically England. And then from England, there's a shift to the United States. And then he argues that the next shift is coming, and it's to China in his book. And this is this book is not new. It's very old. Uh, I, I I read it in grad school. You know when. Uh, so he um, talks about the shift to China, and what he says is the shifts are getting faster and faster. Where where capital accumulation is moving from one center to another. And definitely China is a center of capital accumulation. Basically, his view is that it, it, he's not talking about nations per se. He's talking about the capitalist elite are moving. You know, they, they don't have any, they're kind of becoming more cosmopolitan. They don't have any national allegiances per se. But he talked, he also there's discussion about China in terms of a hybrid superpower where the United States and China share powers, where China won't be a military power, but an economic superpower. And the U.S. retains the military might and they work together. And it's interesting. So in, in terms of the relationship like that, you're absolutely right. I mean, America makes its iPads and its iPhones here, you know, Te more Teslas are sold in China than anywhere else in the world. Actually, the price of Tesla's vehicles are cheaper in China than anywhere else in the world. Um, one of the reasons is they have to make, one of the reasons is demand. More people buy Teslas here than anywhere else. People could say it's because of the sco economy, uh, scope of the economy, economy of scale. But the other reason is that there's so many similar vehicles to Tesla. The Chinese make many similar electric electric vehicles that are stiff competition inside the domestic market. So Tesla has to lower its prices. Um, there's complexities here, definitely. But uh, I also want to point out there is no zero COVID policy here. The government scrapped that. Uh, you know, days after they were saying this, this is the scientific way, they said, no, it's not. This is the scientific way. And they promoted herd, uh, herd immunity. They dropped all policies. And they let everybody catch COVID and naturally deal with it. And once enough people catch it, uh, it'll be gone. Now, the difference is China went cold turkey into this, basically. So, so I mean, uh, other places might have phased into it. 
but but in China they just went cold turkey, and and so you you see a lot more people catching COVID. Like there's cities where, uh, like I mean you can this is all a matter of public record, right? You can actually check in China. There's even apps that show based on official uh, sources how many people in a city caught it, and you'll see 33 percent, 40 percent. Uh, so it, it's not even you don't even you don't even need to give like uh, 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 guesstimates. You can actually do some research. You have to be able to speak Mandarin and read Chinese script, but you can actually find out percentages uh, in, in specific many big cities of how many people caught it. Uh, the government always classified COVID-19 from the get-go in 2020 as a category B virus, I believe. Uh, but it always treated it, they, it always, they always treated COVID as a category A virus. I mean, the, the, their scientists said this is category B, but their treatment was always that of a category A for COVID, you know, which is excessive, you know, uh, I, like, because it's not the same category as higher risk, but they knew uh, uh, what COVID was uh, to what level, but they still went with those lockdown policies that they've ended. You know, they they've ended it. So people people ask why did they end it and what are the reasons for it? Uh, there could be economics linked to it. The protests and and riots could and, and public pressure could be a reason. But I, I have to point out one thing that once they ended COVID, the zero COVID policy, actually many citizens ended were ended up supporting it, wishing it was back because they saw how many people were getting infected. Um, and definitely uh, there were mortalities in this country. I mean, funeral, you could see the social media on social media. And if you know anyone in China, you can speak to them about how many people went, the, what happened to the funeral parlors. Now, I, I don't want to say that this is a killer virus and, and, and be an alarmist or a fear monger, but uh, I would say that those, I mean, many, of, many people that were elderly died, but that percentage is not high. It's not high whatsoever. Like the mortality rate's not not uh, most people don't have anything to worry about about the virus. It's very contagious. This is correct, but uh, the more, like what happened is basically many people died at the same time instead of it being spread out uh, like uh, other viruses. You know the deaths are not at once; they're spread out or or just natural end of longevity, natural death spread out. So the same amount of people that would have died did die, uh, but around the same period you know which makes it which creates this uh which can skew your perspective and and what you think the virus can do or how deadly it is that was sociologist and author madi nazamroya you're listening to the global research news hour a program funded by the center for research on globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station ckuw 95.9 fm in winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. 
If you need feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.